0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Sukkot teaching by Rabbi Matt Shapiro and Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. Rabbi Shapiro and I will be teaching this morning. And for those of you who have been uh, part of our Parsha class on Friday mornings, uh, which we recently just finished... Um, this will this will somewhat be like that, and somewhat not be like that. But um, but we do hope that that you get a kick out of hearing both of us take on one particular verse that I'll let Rabbi Shapiro introduce. We'll give out these sheets in just a moment, and just know that it's about one per every two people. Rabbi Shapiro.
1: Sukkot, we're in community. Everybody can share. Um, we're going to be focusing on a haxmech, everyone. We're going to be focusing on a verse today that people have seen twice in the past two days. Um, We're going to be picking up um, in chapter 23, verse 40, at the very end um, of what we were reading this morning. Um, It's after we've made it through the unfolding of the Jewish year and picking up, uh, there's then. A couple of mitzvot specific to Sukkot that are listed. We hear about how we should dwell in booths. I hope everyone is enjoying their respective booths thus far. And before we get there, we hear about the Arbaminim, the four species that we have been uh, so uh, joyously gesticulating with so far this morning. And so we're going to be looking at verse 40, and if you look at the commentary in the Eitz time Kumash, it focuses a lot on how we know which species are which. But neither Rabbi Schatz, right, nor I are going to be focusing on that this morning, correct? Correct. correct? Um, and what we're going to do now is uh, we, as the clergy at Temple Beth Am, uh, share a lot of similar interests— and yet uh, Rabbi Schatz and I often are drawn to different types of rabbinic literature. So Rabbi Schatz is going to be sharing um, some literature from uh, the more traditional halachic sources. I'm going to share a piece of Hasidut, and we'll see uh, where we wind up at the end. And that is the segue, apparently, through which we're handing out the sheets. Um, I have the Hebrew, Hebrew copies of the Hasidic source that we're going to be looking at in a little bit, so I don't know quite how to distribute that if people are interested in it, but Rabbi Shatz is going to start, so maybe I'll just walk around with it for people.
0: Okay, so the verse that we're looking at is chapter 23, verse 40, as Rabbi Shapiro mentioned, and it says, <speaking in Hebrew> What that means in English is on the first day, you're going to take this pre-Eitz Hadar, this this fruit from the Eitz Hadar, and branches from the palm tree, and bows of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, very specific, and you shall rejoice before your God for seven days. So first of all, what are some questions that you have immediately about this verse? How do you rejoice? Great. What is the way in which you rejoice? What does it mean to be told to rejoice, but then not given any instruction on how to do so? Barry? Which first day? Great. And what does take mean? Oh, great. I have, I have plants. Any other? Oh, sorry. Didn't see. You. Great. What are Hadar trees? So there, as, I, as I kind of said tongue in cheek, this isn't very specific, right? It doesn't tell us what it means to have these types of species. So as Marty's pointing out, like what does it what does it mean to have hadar trees? okay, so I brought three uh, halachic sources, three sources from different. Jewish law texts. We're not going to read the third one. I'm just going to tell you that ahead of time. I just thought it was interesting, but it's not actually what I want to focus on. What I want to focus on is what Rabbi Dr. Avi Havivi just brought up, and it'll touch upon what Barry also mentioned. So it says here in this first text that says, Sefer HaMitzvot, if you are not on that side of the sheet, turn it over. Um, I'm just going to read in the English for time's sake. That is that God commanded us to hold the lulav and to rejoice in front of God for seven days. Okay, still not very specific. And that God is saying, our verse, and you shall take for yourselves on the first day. And it was explained there that the obligation of this commandment, seven days, is only in the time of the temple. So you don't have to do this unless we have the Beit HaMikdash. So only on the first day do you actually have to do this, as it's an obligation from the Torah. So it seems to me that the answer to what does it mean the first day is that if there is no temple, which is like... Today for us we don't have a Beit Hamikdash. That this really only this. This is really only for the first day that you need to take the this lulav and etrog, right? That you need to actually uphold these species to be able to use them. If we had the Beit Hamikdash, how many days would we need to take them up? Seven, right? So we would need to actually do this mitzvah more according to the Sefer Hamitzvot. You would. You need to do this more if we had the Beit Hamikdash. But if we don't have the Beit Hamikdash, as in 2022, we only have to do this on the first day. Why might that be? Great. So what? So the fact that it actually says by Yom Harishon means that that would be the only day that you have to pick it up, right? It seems self-explanatory that that would be the only day. But then to the to the opposite side, why would we need to do it for the seven days if we did have a temple, Stevie? Oh, interesting. Interesting. So Stevie Stevie is claiming and at a different time I would I would argue with him, but what he's saying is that the Smachtem, the, the oh, but Rabbi Shapiro agrees. Um, so all the more reason I would argue. But there's but there is, there is a point that's being made here that you should rejoice with God. And so if you're rejoicing in the face of or in the presence of God, is that only actually possible if you have the Beit HaMikdash and therefore you would do it all seven days and not just the first day? Okay. The, oh, yes, Mike. Right. Well, because we don't have the Beit HaMikdash is the first answer, right, that we wouldn't follow the seven... D- Was that your question? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were asking why we don't today do it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't hear the question then. But yes, Stevie's correct that we did we did do it all of those all of those days. What? He's got a good track Um Though my teacher Rabbi Aaron Alexander would be making a lot of fun of me for being, bringing the Kitzer shulchan aruch. I'm doing it anyway. Um, and what the Kitzer says here is ba'Yom tov Harishon, enyotim belulav ushar minim she'ulim elatrichin sheyu shelo mamash. Okay, so on the first day, you can't actually fulfill this mitzvah of the lulav and etrog b- if they were borrowed, but they actually have to belong to you. So as Rabbi Klickfeld mentioned before we gave the instructions for, sh- for waving the lulav and etrog, what he said was, if you don't have one, take one from someone else, but don't actually take it from their hands. You're- put it down on the chair, and then they will take it for themselves as if it is a gift or as if they are actually going to own it themselves. Our rabbis expound for yourself, meaning from that which is yours, which excludes a borrowed lulav or etrog. So those living outside of Eretz Israel who observe Yom Tov, which we do, right, Yom Tov Sheni, because of a doubt about the date, even on the second day, so the day that we are on right now, should not say a bracha over a borrowed lulav. So what the Kitzer is saying here is that if you are... If you are using a Lulav that in that moment is for you because you are borrowing it, but you are taking it for yourself, you do not say the blessing. If someone gives you their lulav as a gift, on the condition that you're going to return it, it's considered halachically as a gift. And so you can fulfill the mitzvah with it. It's as if it's yours. right? If someone gives you a gift, they don't expect it back. In this case, it's a legal um, workaround, basically, that even if it's being given to you as a gift, the understanding is that it is going to come back to you. So a different kind of gift. But in that case, you can fulfill the mitzvah with it. If the person gives it to you unconditionally for the purpose of fulfilling the mitzvah, it is considered as if they had expressly stipulated that they are giving it to you as a gift on the condition that you return it. So that's just explaining a little bit more of what I just said. Any questions about this particular halacha here? Yeah, Tate. Yeah. Oh, I can pick that up. Oh, okay.
1: Rabbi Shapiro. Well, it's not halacha, but... That's okay. Do you have a response? No, go ahead. (laughs) Well, I I don't know if the, what give me another sentence on what you're seeing the problem is because it might be a good segue into what I'm doing or it might not be at all. Right. So, uh, right. Uh, the rabbis are, are
0: taking the fact that there's two words, like right? they're thinking about lahem to yourself, right? right. they're saying, well, we have to expand on that, that creates a problem. But here we've got a solution for that. But if they had never said, hey, there's a second word here, we've got to make some meaning out of it, like then you don't have a problem. You have to come up with a workaround. Story. It's like right.
1: Have you met rabbinic Judaism?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think the answer, it's not really an answer, just like a comment on your comment, I guess, is that, sure, and how would we then understand the idea of ulek hachtem lachem? Right. If I, th- I actually think that it opens up a wider net for being able to share, for being able to in community share in this mitzvah, even if for whatever reason you don't have the lulav and etrog, maybe you can't afford it, maybe you were traveling and didn't have enough time to buy it, etc. That that now you can still fulfill that mitzvah, and we're creating, we're taking down, I guess, but but also creating these boundaries for which it still is halachically. Permissible to not have one of your own, but in community or just with one other person, be able to still fulfill that mitzvah
1: so uh, i 'll take that in a different direction in terms of words that seem like they might be leave aloneable, which is not a phrase, um, but actually might be indicating something to us that we can explore a bit because again i mean i was I was being mildly cheeky. It's been a long tishrei. Um, but we know that, through the lens of the rabbis, there is no phrase, word, letter in the Torah that isn't there for a specific reason. And so, in terms of what Rabbi Schatz was saying, right, that, that halachic piece is really exploring the lachem, right? The verse could conceivably say, right? so, so why lachem? And this piece of Kedushat Levi that we're going to look at now, if you want to flip your sheets over, um, he's going to pick up on uh, this idea of Bayom HaRishon, because it could also just say, It could just say, take up these four species that we learn about, because just the verse before, we heard that we were told We, were told, we, we already know what day we're doing this on. We're doing it on the 15th of the month. So why say the first day, right? You could argue back and forth, but it seems like you might just be able to say, it would be a much shorter verse. It would give the sofer's hand a little bit of a break, but it says, so, so why does it say um, on this first day? And he takes it in a very different direction, right? In, instead of looking at the halachic implications, instead of looking at what are the legal requirements for what we do with Lulav and etrog, as Hasidic literature often does, he refracts it through the lens of what we might learn from this phrase to bring it to an inner reflective place. And, and here, as we'll see, in terms of thinking about um, our relationship with God and, and what that can be. So this is... Oh, mm. No,
0: I was just going to say, before he, before Rabbi Shapiro goes into this text, this is part of why I think, Stevie, to, to your point of why they focus on Bayom Rishon, that that what Rabbi Shapiro is about to, to share, and I won't give any spoilers but it really does show that we can take this in not just not just when there is a temple but also every day that we're taking up this mitzvah and that the lulav and etrog actually help us to to do that um unimaginable task of being told how to feel right how to feel and how to celebrate even without knowing what the specifics are on that
1: it's a good segue um, so this is a piece from the Kedushat Levi, uh, Reb Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, who was a third generation Hasidic master, by way of Rabbi Art Green uh, from his volume "Speaking Torah," in which he gives a lot of wonderful selections of Hasidic literature. He gives both the Hebrew and the English. Which um, you have the Hebrew in front of you, and this is a slightly modified translation of what he of what he wrote. But um, a lot of the translating work was his. So grateful for that. Um, so the Kedushat Levi, he first gives a rabbinic response, sort of opening up the question. Is the 15th of the month really the first day? When we said 15th of the month, why is it now also saying the first day? And in Tanchuma on Parshat and more, which is what we're reading, they say, yes, it is the first day on which sins are counted, which is not really what you would think reading that verse, Right. Um, and he says, this statement remains unexplained. In, in the collection of the, of the Midrash, it says it's the first day on which sins are counted, but it's sort of left at that. So that leaves yet more of a gap for us to try to wrestle with what's, what's really going on here with the rabbinic layer on top of the verse. And he now gives his explanation of this. This seems to be the meaning. On the days from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur, every Jew goes about with open eyes, surveys his deeds, prepares to return to God. Each of us, according to our own mind and our own level of piety, fears God and God's glorious majesty as God rises to judge the earth. So he's you know, talking about our collective psychology. Maybe he's giving us a little window into what his experience is like on the Yamim Noraim. But this idea that if God is rising up as a judge, an Yamim Noraim, that's a bit of an intimidating prospect that we're all being judged over the course of that period of time. The day of God is near. Who can ever feel righteous in judgment? Who can but fear and be humbled in coming before the judge of all the world? So really leaning on what it is to be uh, judged over the course of the high holidays. If you tremble before God in this way, as he's suggesting many, if not all of us do, you will rise in the heights of your mind to set aright whatever has gone wrong. Fear is a powerful motivator. If I'm feeling scared, if I'm worried of how I'm going to be judged, that can be a powerful motivation to fix what I've done wrong. He says, such a return to God is called repentance from fear. That's, of course, the translation, the the Hebrew, chuvah mi yirah. I'm experiencing fear, awe, trembling. I'm experiencing the sense of "yura" over the course of this stretch of time. And that is the motivation. That is what compels me to make tshuva over the course of that time period. With me so far? Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. Got to be on your best behavior. And you've got to be on your best behavior because otherwise you're going to be in big, big trouble. Right? So we're scared, and so that's why we make tshuva. It's a little bit intimidating to, to do that in that time period. Great. But after Yom Kippur, we are involved with such mitzvot as sukkah and lulav, as we see here today. We give to the needy as generously as God has blessed us. We love serving God in this joyous and good hearted way. And here in the joyous, you see he's sort of hinting at the, the back end of the verse there, right? When we're told this samachta, leif and this is repentance out of love, so he 's contrasting Chuva miyura with Chuva miahva. it 's one thing to say, "I might get punished, I might get in trouble, so i 'm going to change what i 'm doing." it 's another thing entirely to say i 'm feeling connected, i 'm feeling love, i 'm feeling a sense of joy in what i 'm doing, and that 's what 's going to bring me back. Those are very different experiences, and he's saying on Sukkot, that's what this is. So here's, here's where the, the kind of interesting flip starts to come in, because going back to the first paragraph, this idea that Sukkot is when sins start to be counted, that does not seem to be a v'samachta b'chagecha kind of thing, right? If on Sukkot we're being told, rejoice, now is when your sins are going to start being counted, those seem to be somewhat at odds with each other, but, but he's going to give us a really interesting flip. Our sages taught that when one repents out of fear, intentional transgressions are reduced to the status of unintentional misdeeds. So here he's pulling a piece from the Talmud that if I have done something on purpose and I make tshuva out of yura, out of fear, it moves to the category of shogeg. It's not as severe a misdeed once I've made tshuva. But When one repents out of love, the same transgressions are transformed into actual merits, into zhuyot. So when I make this different type of tshuva, this type of tshuva that I engage in on Sukkot right around now, it's not just that the transgression is less severe, it's that it's now actually counted as a positive in the ledger. It's not just moved over, it actually switches its valence completely. Now, God, in his great mercy and kindness, wants the penitent to return in truth and in love. And here's a quote from uh, a piece of liturgy that we heard a bunch recently. You do not seek the death of mortals, but that they returned from their way and lived on the the back end of the Untanotokhev. So on this holiday, when we come to rest in God's shade, literally and figuratively, performing mitzvot and good deeds out of the love of God, that's when God begins counting our sins. Why? He wants to know how many merits we are earning in the process of exchange. So it's a really interesting flip here. Why is it that God starts counting our transgressions on Sukkot? Because God knows that now is a time when we have all these opportunities from tshuva mehavah, from returning out of love. And so therefore, now is when we're going to start accumulating all those great credits. All those great brownie points. Because we have all these opportunities to perform it meets vote and to celebrate and to do it out of love, we start counting sins now because it's actually going to be to our benefit. And he says he doesn't count them prior to Sukkot when only fear is in the air, which is... Uh, A bit of a transliterative flourish, but it sounds good, so I left it in there. When only fear is in the air. So this is the meaning of the first day when sins are counted, that God gives us all of this goodness and blessing just as God always wants to do. It reminds me of something Rabbi Kligfeld quoted towards the end of Yom Kippur. That he had seen online, right? That if we reflect so much on how we behave between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, how much the more so should we reflect on our behavior between Yom Kippur and next Rosh Hashanah? But with a a theological piece to it that I think is really interesting that God waits, that God waits to start chalking up the tally until God has a sense that we're going to be making tshuva from a different place, not just out of fear, not just out of, uh uh-oh, I might get in trouble, but out of a real sense of love. And I think that there's a real lovely, um, both behavioral insight there and a real, uh, for me, a really resonant uh, theological statement there as well.
0: I'm going to let Rabbi Shapiro have the final word, but I'll just share the reflections um, when we were looking at these texts side by side that that I came to. So number one, I worked with a B'nai Mitzvah kid a few weeks ago who talked about what does it mean to be told to be happy, and he mentioned that there is a study that if you basically get someone to put a smile on their face, that they are going to be happier even if you force them to put that smile on their face. And what, what I think this, this text is telling us in conjunction with the halacha is that we're not always going to feel happy or excited or ready to do what it is that we have to do on Sukkot or really any other time, but let's just focus on Sukkot for now. But to Marty's point earlier, what, what are all these different trees? We don't actually know what they are, but what we do know is that they're different And so when we're talking about going from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur into Sukkot, there are so many ways in which Sukkot is a beautiful transition out of the mindset of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And one of them is that we kind of have to collect our pieces. We kind of have to collect the different parts of ourselves to come together to be able to do that final piece of reflection. To be able to say... There's a little bit of me over here. There's a little bit of me over there. And there's a little bit of me over there. And I need to come back together. I've worked on all these different pieces, but now I need to put myself back together to hopefully be happy and hopefully be able to rejoice with God. And we're asked to do that in in a command form because we might not feel like we can yet. But what the Torah is asking of us is to lift up these species that, as I'm sure you've all heard over time, are also supposed to be illustrations of different parts of our body that allow us to see and smell and feel and stand. And to be able to say, okay, I'm ready after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I'm ready to move forward. I'm ready to be aware of the person that I want to be that I worked very hard to confront during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and to move forward through this year. And the last thing is that it has to be about you, that you can't look to someone else and point the fingers and say, well, but if only they did that for me, or if only my relationship with them was this way, or if only they had done the work to this, my life would then be better. No, no. The lulav has to be yours. You have to take it up. You might be able to borrow it from someone else. You might be able to look at someone else's way of doing tshuva and say, oh, I really appreciate the way that they are working on themselves. Maybe I should do that for me. But ultimately, it has to be about you. You have to go from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and take up all those pieces of yourself and be able to say, this is the way in which I am going to approach the rest of my year. And hopefully, you don't need the push but potentially you need the push to be able to say, and I'm going to do it joyfully, and I'm going to do it with God.
1: Do I need? Fo- oh, I'm following that apparently. Okay. I'm the final word. Great. Um, I, I, I'll say another half thing on that. Half thing. Um, a long time ago, I think I did, when, when before I had kids, so I had a little more free time, I think I looked back over the course of the Torah, and I looked at, and I was curious to explore joy and I looked at the different places in the Torah where this idea of simcha pops up. And what I noticed then, and I, a lot has happened, but I don't think the Torah has changed. Uh, what I noticed over the course of the Torah is that this idea of simcha really only shows up in, when one is in relationship to something else. Like nowhere in the Torah does it say, ve'ani sameach, right? Nowhere does it say, and I'm happy now, right? Simcha is always in relationship to celebrating on a day, uh, right? Uh, or celebrating with God, there's always a sense of joy isn't something that happens in a vacuum. Joy is always in conjunction with, in connection to, in a relationship with uh, another party or a day, right? It's, it's not something that just, just happens to you. And on one side, What Rabbi Schatz is saying, I completely agree with, that this is something that only you can do. Tshuva is something ultimately only you can do. This idea that um, taking lulav, it's your mitzvah, and at the same time, we're also never really alone. We're never just doing things in this world siloed by ourselves in isolation. At the very, very least, we always have something bigger than us. We have a relationship with God. We have um, something that is always open to and available for partnership. Even for the things that only we as individual humans can do, there is always um, the opportunity for partnership with and returning to God. So it's... It, to me, it's, it's both. It's On the one hand, it's something that I need to do for myself. And on the other hand, certainly on a holiday that we get so much joy out of being in the sukkah with other people, being in community with others, um, getting through uh, these hagim, not just by ourselves, but with others. I think it also makes a lot of sense to think about that when joy comes, joy comes, yes, internally for us as individuals, but also always in relationship um, at the very least, with God and also uh, with the people in our lives with whom we can hopefully rejoice as we continue to move through this holiday. You have been listening to another in
0: our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to TBA la.org.